Well, our text here is that God promises to protect us if we are faithful to him from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. And we we thought about that last week to a degree. The hour of trial. It's interesting that the Bible is not so concerned about precise dates as it is ideas. The hour of trial. You know that John speaks in 1 John, little children, it's the last hour. And what is what are we to understand with these things? Well, I would like us to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. The first thing I would like us to do is look at Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Because as we look at those who come against us, what can we say? Page 1074. Page 1074, Isaiah chapter 10. And let's look at verse 5. In Isaiah's day, the great empire was that of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was later taken over, that landmass, by the Babylonians. So Isaiah's thinking of the Assyrian Empire. But listen to what he says, Isaiah 10:5. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me, to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Now, this is what we have to say. Who was the one who raised up the Assyrian Empire against the Jewish people? It was God. And he refers to the Assyrian Empire in verse 5 as the rod of his anger. As the rod of his anger. So, when people are persecuted... We have to understand something. Persecution doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not outside the plan of God. God raised up the Assyrian Empire to wipe out utterly, totally, and completely the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel only had one good king. He was relatively good, and he was the very last king they had. They were destroyed utterly, totally, and completely in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And what does God say of the Assyrians? Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. Why does he say woe to the Taliban? Woe to ISIS. Why does he say woe to the enemies of decency? Because the enemies of decency... And the enemies of God don't intend to do what God has them doing. This is the thing we have to say about the world that does not know God. They are working out God's purpose in history, but they don't understand it. So God, in effect, raises up the Assyrian Empire to wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. Have you ever thought about the terrible things that happened in that? War is always terrible. The founder of LSU, or its first president, people don't like to say this, uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, referred to war as hell. And it's the closest thing that we have on earth to the eternal hell that the Bible talks about. 
War is terrible. The Assyrians were cruel people. What did they do? They chopped off the heads of their enemies. Sounds like what goes on in today's world. They chopped off the heads of their enemies and stacked the skulls of the men outside the city. So that when you walked into a city that had been taken over by the Assyrians, you saw a stack of rotting heads. What was that designed to say to you? It was designed to say, this can happen to you. You see, the Assyrian Empire was a terrorist empire. But here is the basic thing. Most empires that have ever existed have been terrorist empires. You see that in Assyria. You see it later on as Assyria went into demise and God raised up the Babylonians. You see terrorism there. You see it also with the Medes and the Persians when, those peop- when people rose up against them. And you see it in the Greeks. Terrorism, terrorism. And so what empires do is they exert great violence. They, wait, or they, they made slaves of the women and children. They raped them wholesale. War is terrible, terrible. Thank God the church is a warrior nation. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We wage war by our word of proclamation as we share our faith with others and by prayer. But most of the empires in history have been terribly, terribly violent terrorists. And so we see here Assyria. Assyria is the rod of God's anger. God was angry with the people of Israel because they disregarded him, because they had entered into a covenant with him at Mount Sinai, and they had broken it over and over and over again. All you have to do is read Leviticus chapter 26, and you see that God says, this is what I'm going to do, and if you don't repent, I'm going to punish you seven times more for your sins, and so on. So... Assyria is the rod of God's anger. It's the club of his wrath. He sent it against a godless nation. That godless nation was the nation of Israel. It was a godless nation. And you know, the worst things that God reserves are for those who have had a relationship externally with God and turned their back on it. And so Assyria is called that. And uh, you go down here and in verse 7 he says, But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. In other words, the Assyrian Empire was strictly built on ambition of its leaders. Their personal ambition. They wanted conquest. They wanted to steal other people's land. They wanted to steal other people's gold and silver. They wanted to steal the bodies of other people and use them for their own ends. That was their purpose, but God had a purpose in their purpose. Now, turning over to Isaiah 45, I think this is another very powerful scripture. And this is an important truth, that the Bible has what we may call predictive prophecy. And and we'll get to that in a moment. Isaiah chapter 45, that's page 1131. Isaiah 45, verse 1, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. 
Now, what is he saying? Remember that Isaiah lives roughly 700 years before Christ, ballpark figure, roughly 700 years before Christ. He lives a long time before the Assyrian Empire collapses and the Babylonian Empire rises up. Uh, Well, he lives a short time before that. And he lives a long time before the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people in the southern kingdom. And he lives a long time before the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians. And they're conquered by the Persians. And after the conquest of Babylon by the Persians, God has raised up this king, Cyrus the Great, to issue a decree that God's people in captivity under the Assyrians and the Babylonians may return home. And so we're told here that God has raised up this man. Now, let me tell you, there are two approaches to the Bible, and it's very important we take the one and not the other. People who don't believe in miracles, people who don't believe that God hears and answers prayers today, People who don't expect anything when they ask things of God look at the Bible and say, well, there's no way that Isaiah could have prophesied the coming of a Persian king who would release the Jewish people from their captivity to the Babylonians in 539 B.C. There's no way he could do that. He can't know the future. And so therefore, they will refer to Isaiah as 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah and sometimes third Isaiah, because they don't believe in miracles. The same thing is particularly true of the book of Daniel, which is my particular concern as we look uh, in the coming weeks at some things in Daniel. People read prophecies in the book of Daniel that deal with the coming of a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and they say there's no way that Daniel who lived during the time of the Babylonian captivity, having been taken captive probably in 605 B.C., and having lived to see the Persians conquer Babylon, and for a few years after that, there's no way he could know this. In fact, as they look at a chapter like Daniel chapter 11 that reads like a newspaper, it says this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and this... People who don't believe in miracles say, well, there's no way that he could have said that. So therefore, the book of Daniel was written not during the 6th century before Christ, but it was written, it was written in the 1st or 2nd century, actually the 2nd century before Christ. Why? Because miracles don't happen. You see, if you begin with the proposition miracles don't happen, if you dismiss the supernatural, it's like looking at a bat, as we had the children's story today. Bats see with their their ears. How can that happen? And so people have to come up with an elaborate scheme and things like this. If you set a chimpanzee in a room and allow him to sit in that room for millions of years, if he could live that long, he eventually could type out the Encyclopedia Britannica perfectly. 
Well, that's just ridiculous. The point I want to say to you, my basic appeal to you today is we live in a world that is governed both naturally and supernaturally. Yes, the Bible teaches predictive prophecy. Yes, the Bible sometimes give us, gives us history prophesied hundreds of years before events happen, as in Daniel chapter 11, as in Daniel chapter 7, as in Daniel chapter 8. Now we're going to look here at on page 1131 at something very important, and that is God calls Cyrus the Great his anointed. He was referring to him as a Christ figure. Does that mean that Cyrus the Great was like the Lord Jesus? No, not at all. Does that mean that he was a righteous ruler in the same way that King David was through most of his reign? No, it doesn't. It simply means that God anointed King Cyrus for a specific task. And that specific task was to set the Jewish people free from the yoke of Babylon and allow them to return home. Now I want you to notice something here in verse 2, Isaiah 45, 2. He says, I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. And again, Isaiah lived roughly around 700 B.C. But this man comes into power in 539 B.C. And here God is saying through the lips of Isaiah that he is going to raise up this king of Persia to set the Jewish people free. Now I want you to notice what's said here. He says, so that you may know that I am the Lord. And when you see the word Lord in all capitals, it stands for God's personal name. I am a human being. I'm a man, but my proper name is Robert. God is God, but he has a proper name. His proper name is made up of four Hebrew letters that are probably best pronounced as Yahweh. So that you may know that I am Yahweh, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Now notice at verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. And verse 5, I am Yahweh, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, there is no other. Now notice what the Lord says about himself here, because it's very important if we understand the religion of the Persian Empire. The religion of the Persian Empire was called Zoroastrianism. And what Zoroastrianism taught was that there was a good God and there was an evil God. And they were equally powerful. So you have Ahura Mazda and Angramaya. The evil God, Angramaya, the good God, Ahura Mazda. Now notice what God says to Cyrus who believed in this dualistic religion. You know, like the dark side of the force and the light side of the force. You remember uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi teaching Luke Skywalker in, in uh, that New Age movie that is so successful in rewriting how people think. 
You see, it's a dualism. Beware of the dark side, Luke. Beware of Angramaya. Give yourself to the, to the good side of the force, Ahura Mazda. Now notice what God says of himself. Look at verse 7. Unlike Ahura Mazda who formed the light and Angramaya who created darkness, unlike Ahura Mazda that sent prosperity or Angramaya who created disaster, evil, trouble, COVID-19, a failure of our military in Afghanistan, not because of our military, but because of the higher ranking officers and the people at the very top. What I want you to understand is that God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. And what we have to understand is that the Bible teaches that our Lord God is at work in history right now, just as our Lord God was at work in history in the days of Isaiah and in the days of the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. God is still at work. So what happens? Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from God. And what is the comfort in this for you and me? As we look at things, and I have a friend whose nephew was in Kabul this uh, past week because he's, he's a Navy SEAL. The disaster that is going on there is beyond belief. It is beyond belief. Who is ISIS? ISIS is a radical group of people. They're not aligned with, with uh, Iran. They're aligned with the thinking of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, Arabia is the most radical Muslim nation in the world. Yet they're our allies. And how in the world is it that we give the names of American citizens or people who have cooperated with our military since we invaded that part of the world to the Taliban? How do we do things like this? It's only when God gives a nation over to insanity that we do things like that. And you cannot read the news, you cannot listen to what's happening and fail to understand that our Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh who does what? Who forms the light and creates the darkness. Who brings prosperity on the one hand and also creates disaster, wicked, evil. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible invites you and me to trust in Him. So as we look at history moving in a particular direction, where is history moving to? It's moving to the return of Christ. I believe we're very near the return of Christ. And as God prepares our world for the return of Christ, what is He doing? What God is doing with the Western world and the whole world is what He did with Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened with Sodom and Gomorrah? You know that in Genesis 14, an alliance of kings out of the out of uh, out of the uh, out of Mesopotamia comes down and conquers Sodom and Gomorrah and other nations, and they are rescued by Abraham. They had an, they had a warning shot from God: "You better straighten up because I'm about to clean your plow." And what happens? Did they straighten up? No, they didn't. In fact. 
several chapters later in Genesis 19, God sends two angels. Did they know they were angels? Angels don't look like uh, we picture them. Angels don't have wings. Cherubim have wings. Seraphim have wings. But if an angel walked in here right now, you would not realize that person is an angel except for the sense of incredible purity and beauty that that angel had. That's why people entertained angels without knowing it. And so these two angels come appearing simply to be ordinary men. And so they come into the square. Lot sees them. Lot, who should have moved out long ago, Lot invites them into his home because he knew the dangers. And Scripture tells us that Lot was vexed in his heart. Day after day, he, he lamented the horrible things that were happening in his city. And here they come. And they beat on the door where Lot has taken these two very beautiful very pure, radiant-looking men, and all of the people of Sodom, from young to old, are pounding on the door. And Lot Lot goes out and locks the door behind him and offers them as virgin daughters for them to rape and abuse and do whatever they wanted to. But they don't want that. They want something more beautiful, something more pure than a virgin girl. They want these angels because they're obsessed with destroying what is beautiful, destroying what is pure. And what happens? The angels rescue Lot. The angels strike them with blindness so the men can't find them. He must have had other daughters. He goes out to find his sons-in-law, but they treat him as if he's telling a joke. So finally Lot escapes with his wife and his two daughters But his wife disobeys and she looks back with longing at the city that she left with all of the luxury, all the beautiful goods, all of the magnificent things, their wonderful home, their big house, all the prosperity. And God strikes her down. Wow. What's going to happen to the United States? If the Lord Jesus tarries very long, God is going to destroy this nation utterly, totally, and completely. All you have to do is read your Bible. Romans chapter 1. When people choose to reject God out of their thinking, He gives them over to a reprobate mind. And you see that reprobate mind working out. Dear ones, you see it under the last president and you see it under the current president. You see these things going back into the, into the last century in the 1900s as well as in the new century. You see it. America's foreign policy is embracing the very things that the book of Romans tells us God visits on a people that turn their back on him. What's our comfort? What's our encouragement? Our comfort and encouragement is that God is in absolute control of our world. COVID and all the other things related to it, I have no idea what all is true of it. I mean, I honestly don't. The vaccine that doesn't seem to help in many cases, I've got vaccinated friends in hospitals struggling for their lives now. What are we going to do? You know what we have to do as a people? And it starts with the church. We have to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand because God is beginning the process of destroying the earth.
Who's doing it? God's doing it. God's doing it. It's a warning shot. It's saying to people, it's later than you think. Three minutes later than you think. It's later than you think. And what does God want of you and of me? He wants us to be sold out for Jesus. He wants us not to love our lives even unto death. He wants us to be willing to share our faith in Jesus Christ with other people. He wants us to stand up for the truth. Listen, you can witness to anybody anywhere. Just offer to pray with them. I don't need to tell you those stories, but what I need to say is, in Revelation chapter 3, God is preparing His church for being delivered in the middle and out of this hour of trial that is about to come on all nations. May we pray. Lord, would you grant that each of us here would know you, would love you. And Lord, as we see our world falling apart, crumbling, Lord, seeing the incompetence of the current leadership of the Pentagon and of the White House. And these things didn't start uh, in the, in a year ago and a half ago. Lord, this is a process that's been going on. Lord, as we have caused the deaths of so many people in Afghanistan and in that part of Pakistan, in Kuwait, in Iraq, Lord, failing to understand who our real enemies are and aligning, Lord, with our ultimate enemies. Lord, we see this incompetence. We see the trumpet giving an uncertain sound from the CDC. Lord, strange, strange things happening. Lord, this terrible hurricane bearing down on, on the state of Louisiana. All these things have been around from time immemorial, but they are increasing because as with a woman in labor, the birth pangs are coming quicker and more intense as we move on to your return. May all of us here know you and love you and truly be saved. For Jesus' sake, amen.